Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with national baseball writer Tyler Kepner of the New York Times as they talk about the big stories of the 2021 baseball season and their predictions of who will win it all this year. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, we sit down with the national baseball writer for the New York Times. He's also a best-selling author. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Tyler Kepner. Tyler, thanks for coming on the program. Happy to be here, Brett. Love the, uh, love the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. In my life, Tyler, kids come up to me, parents come up to me. They've got, you know, what was it like? What's this like? It, you know, the typical questions you'd expect people to, to, ask, to, to ask an ex-MLB player. Sure. But I want to know, when people come up to you and they know who you are and they know what you do, what advice do you give them? Or, or what are the main questions they ask you, kids that maybe one day want to be a writer? Well, you know, a lot of people who who find out you're a baseball writer, they don't really know exactly what that means. You know, they don't know that you get to talk to the players and and they just don't really understand the mechanics of the job. So sometimes it's explaining that to them. Um, but yeah, for, for kids, it's it's tricky because I don't I don't know exactly like what to say about how to get a job. Right. I got my first job uh, in the 90s uh, when the job market was a lot different when newspaper, the whole media landscape was a lot different. Um, But I tell them from a writing standpoint and from just the standpoint of covering something to ask questions that they don't know the answer to and be humble enough to know what you don't know. Um, I've always found that as much baseball as I've watched and played when I was a kid and studied and all that, that I will never know a fraction of what you guys who play it actually know. So that frees me up to just, you know, find out anything I can about this game. Um, Players know when you're, when you're acting like a know-it-all, they can sense that. And I, I've always found they appreciate someone who's genuine and just wants to know. Um, So humble yourself and ask anything and, generally treat people with respect and you'll get, uh, have a good experience coming back to you. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Cause you know, obviously as a player, we, we deal with a lot, with a lot of writers, a lot of uh, different people that, that are all over the game in different capacities. And it's interesting how we go from, you know, we've got our home, uh, when we're, you know, when we have a home game, we pretty much know the faces, but then you're traveling to New York, you go to Boston, you go to Kansas City, different set that come over from the Kansas City side, from the Yankees side. And I always found uh, as a player, especially as a veteran player, I'd, I would always be testing it out the, the unfamiliar face in the room. Like, let's see what kind of chops this guy's got. Let me throw something at him. <laughs> and I like how he responds. It, or do I like how he responds? I don't know. It It, it was but but I think that whole dynamic of of your relationship with players it's it's an interesting one and you're right uh, you stay humble you ask questions uh, and and like you said you you can ask the most intricate question and and if 
a player looks back at you and said, now, Tyler, and you say, hey, I just want to know. I figure, you know, you know, you're a ball player and basically giving him a little bit of a compliment in that. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked me that. Even if I don't know the answer, I might go into a detailed explanation saying, well, he'll just buy whatever I say. But no, that's an that's an interesting dynamic that you mentioned. In order to do what you do, uh, you really got to love this game. And, and I don't care if you're a writer, a broadcaster, player. Uh, who introduced Tyler Kepner into the game of baseball? Well, Brett, I think like most people, uh, it, it was my dad. Um, you know, and and I was I was very lucky. I mean, I was I I'm, was born in Philadelphia in 1975, and so if you fast forward ahead um, five six years, Phillies are the best team in baseball. And I'm growing up in the suburbs and the, the 1981 Phillies. Actually, I think your dad's last game for the Phillies was my first game I ever went to that last game of that Expos playoff series in 81. Um, and then 82 was when it really, the light really came on for me. And I was um, pestering my dad to go down to the vet any chance we could get. And luckily for me, um, my dad had been in the army reserves with David Montgomery um, who at the time was the executive vice president for the Phillies and, and of course, became the uh, president and, and basically ran the team um, when they were winning the World Series in, in 2008 on that range. So Dave was a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, we miss him all the time. And uh, But Dave really, you know, he kind of opened the doors uh, for me um, to this amazing world. Um, you know, we could we, – we got tickets and everything. But more than that, it, it was it – was, just the idea that working in and around baseball was a tangible thing. Um, I did my eighth grade uh, career day at the vet with Dave and showing me all the different departments. Um, And then when I started writing a little baseball magazine, um, when I was 13, 14, 15, um, I got to the point where I I wanted to do interviews and, and uh, I think Dave put in a word with Larry Shank, the uh, PR legend for the Phillies. Just, you know, give this kid a field pass, see how he does. And, you know, I'll do an interview or two on the field and hold my own. And then I start getting clubhouse passes when I was around 15 or 16. So um, I learned that you you can get your foot in the door. Um, but then once once it's in there, you have to prove yourself. It's probably like anything. And, um, and so from there, I just, yeah, I mean, I started to hang around the vet quite a bit. And, um, yeah, but it all started, uh, you know, with, with my dad loving baseball and, and, and wanting to, uh, you know, strengthen that connection with that. What age did you say the first time you got in there and, and did an interview with a player? Uh, the first interview I did was the day after I turned 15 in 1990 at the, uh, at the, at the Clearwater at Russ, Jack Russell stadium. Um, they had a little, a little half field, a little AstroTurf half field behind the right field wall. And uh, Phillies had a rookie pitcher named Pat Combs at the time. And, uh, and I talked with Pat and um, it went really well. And then later, um, later that season, he was pitching for the Phillies and I, I had my first field pass at the vet. Um, and he came up, I felt a tug on my shirt from the, uh, from the dugout. And he was, he's like, you know, he, he came up to me and, and remembered me from our interview in March. And, and, uh, you know, we still uh, exchange Christmas cards to this day. Pat's a great guy. His uh, career didn't last very long, but he's, he's a wonderful dude. Um, but, you know, so that really made me comfortable. And I kind of learned how to, how to navigate that world. It would be for a 15 year old. Did you ever find that? All right. 
I'm 15. So how serious are these players going to take me? It's, you know, from do we treat him like a kid? Like, oh, it's nice you're doing an interview. When did you feel like, no, I've got their ear. I've got their respect as a writer, not as a kid writer coming along. You know, hopefully I can do this one day. Was there any time at the very beginning where there was that kind of gray area? Is, is he a kid? Is he for real? Or no, now I'm an actual uh, writer that's doing this for a living. Yeah, I kind of I kind of expected the worst, honestly. You know, I, I had read, you know, a lot of, uh, I guess, horror stories about how the media is treated by players and, and all this stuff. And and I think what I learned is that in movies and TV, it's 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 dramatized and it's it's not really um, very much at all what it's what it's like when you're down there. Um, it, it and what I mean is that every just about everyone was really nice. They were cool. I mean, I wasn't asking controversial questions. I wasn't getting in their face after a bad loss or whatever, but I was in the clubhouse on the field before games when they're getting ready. And, uh, you know, the, the clubhouse, you see some stuff, you know, like uh, it was a little looser in the, in the, in the early nineties than it is now. Um, but I didn't care. I, 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 uh, I just wanted to, learn more about their world and be amongst them. And I found that if I treated them with respect and hung in there um, and bring a little copy of my magazine to show them who I am and what I do, um, they were cool. You know, I, I, Tony Gwynn was one of the first players I interviewed and I was very lucky that he was because he was, as you know, um, just such a wonderful, warm person. Um, And Tony would take the time to actually sit sit down with you and look you in the eye. He'd actually take you out from the clubhouse to the, to the bench. So he could have a little more privacy and, and just talk um, freely and openly. Um, And I remember one time him saying, just what I said at the the beginning there, Brett, it's like, he's like, I want to know, I learn something every time I come to the ballpark. And it makes me excited to know that every day I, I show up, I'm going to come out with more knowledge than I had going in. And I thought, man, if Tony Gwynn is learning something every day, I'll learn something. I'll learn. I will never uh, stop learning in this game. So his enthusiasm and his his curiosity for something that he had already, in my mind, mastered um, really made an, an, an impact on me. Um, and then later, uh, <laughs> jumping ahead a little bit, when I was in college, I just started at Vanderbilt. He uh he noticed that I was wearing a Vanderbilt shirt. This is the last time I talked to him when I was doing my magazine. And he made that connection to the fact that the Padres beat writer had gone to Vanderbilt. It was a writer named Buster only. And I had to go meet Buster and Tony found Buster and he introduced us. And a few years later, uh, because of that relationship with Buster, um, I got an interview with the New York times and just sort of took it from there. And Tony just playing matchmaker. I was a kid with a couple hundred readers for a little magazine and uh, he wasn't doing it for publicity. Buster was not yet an ESPN or anything. He was just doing it because he was a good guy. And there were so many good experiences like that, man. Like people who um, were a lot nicer than I ever would have expected. Uh, people who opened up. Um, yeah, you know, I could go through all the whole National League and, and just about every team um, was really cool to deal with. I can count on one hand the number of guys who who blew me off back then. So um, I guess it was a combination of, of, of luck and picking the right targets and also just, uh, you know, 
again, showing, showing these guys respect and, and, and understanding that they are working and I am in their workspace and I need to accommodate them on, on their schedule. And, you know, I, I remember one time Matt Williams, it was a night game. He's like, look, I don't have time today, but tomorrow's a day game. I'll get here around 10. And if you're here, I'd love to talk. I was there at 955. And, you know, when he walked in, we sat down, he grabbed a little bagel and we had, we, you know, I didn't eat, but I mean, we it was basically like having breakfast with Matt Williams. You know, All right. What do you, what do you need to know? And he's one of the best players in the league then. So I got to learn that, that they're just regular people too. And they look just like they do on TV. And you're right. Uh, most of the guys, you know, teammates I've had, uh, players that I've played with, players that I've played against, they're usually pretty good guys. You know, they want to be they want to be covered fairly. Uh, they want to they want to be asked smart questions. They want the respect factor to be there. And, and you seem like you you did it the right way. You do all those those things. Uh, and and I think you hit it on the head when you said. You're in their workspace. You know, I find that even as a as an ex-player. You know, I, I had my day. I, you know, I was a really good player. And, and uh, still to this day, I get invited to go up to, to uh, you know, see a Seattle Mariner game, throw out the first pitch. But the first thing I do is when I walk into that clubhouse, I have a, a very high respect level. You know, yeah, that was my clubhouse years ago, but that's not my clubhouse anymore. And I learned that by being a player. First of all, being a kid growing up with dad, coming in the clubhouse, you know, from from a young, young age, and then playing my career, the, the ex-players, and, and some of us are fans of those ex-players, you know, and they come in the clubhouse, oh, so-and-so's over there, and you know, but there's a fine line. It's like, Okay, it's great meeting one of my heroes that I grew up watching, but it's time for me to go to work. And the guys that were respectful, I walked out of that clubhouse with the same uh, thoughts that I had as a kid. Like, wow, he's still one of my favorites. The guys that kind of pushed the envelope, like, hey, don't you know who I am? And this is kind of my house. Uh, you know, I had a little bit of a tarnished opinion of him. So I really, even as an ex-player, I make sure when I go in that clubhouse, it, it is the current players. That's their house. And and uh, I think all the things you said are, are right on. Um, as a kid, did you play? Were you, were you a player at one point? I did. I, I played as, as, as far as my talent would take me, um, which was, you know, varsity high school. And, and I say varsity kind of like the fringe varsity. I'd, I'd pitch, I'd pitch the non-league games. Uh, you had Mark Gubaza on a, a couple months ago and he was in the same, we, we, he's older than me, but we were in the same uh, conference there in, uh, in Philadelphia, the interact conference. And, you know, Mark was like, you know, Mark was, he was the star, man. Like, I was the kind of guy who I would not pitch for Germantown Academy against Penn charter. You know, I'd pitch the games against the Hill school and, and uh, you know, uh, the Valley Forge military Academy and stuff. But I, you know, I, I, I hung in there. What I had, what I did was I, I basically, I could locate. And that's the only, that's the only thing athletic I've ever really been able to do is throw a pitch um, where I want to, I don't throw it that fast. Um, but I could spin a little curveball and I could throw strikes. And so, you know, that, uh, if a coach didn't expect me to throw very fast and knew that his fielders were going to get a lot of work that day, um, you know, I could, I could hang in there because my arm didn't get tired because I didn't throw hard enough to get tired. Um, and I, I, I found, uh, when I was in New York, uh, you know, when I started out in New York, that they have these media games every year. Um, at Fenway Park and Yankee Stadium. And apparently it's not super easy to throw a ball over the plate. I, I, I think it is. Um, 
But doing being able to do that, I've been able to pitch in the media games for a bunch of years, and that that is fun. That's a blast. So yeah, I I, I would never prospect, um, but I can always hang in there. You're kind of a trendsetter. Nowadays, especially, everybody's got a blog, everybody's got a podcast, except for, of course, the Boone podcast. We, we're a little bit set aside from the rest of those podcasters out there. <laughs> <laughs> you started a homemade magazine. Yeah. You would interview players. Uh, this is really fascinating. Did you, did you, did people buy it? Uh, how many did you print? And when did it all start? What age? Uh, I was 13. This is 1988. Um, a friend of mine named uh, John and I, John Pasquale and I had the same exact schedule in seventh grade. And so we had a lot of time just sitting in the back of the classroom talking about our baseball card collections and, and uh, doodling and stuff. And, and I kind of realized all these doodles could become uh, something fun and, and, and possibly a uh, career vehicle. I, I loved the, the local sports writing in, in, in Philadelphia, especially Jason Stark and Bill Lyon, some of the great writers for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I read every baseball book I could get my hands on, I had Sports Illustrated, subscription, all that stuff. Um, so I quickly realized that this whole idea of writing about baseball could be something I could I could do as a career. Um, so that became really exciting uh, once I realized that I could actually make a career out of this. And it was never, you know, I, I'm sure the magazine lost a ton of money because we, we, you know, we, we hardly had any advertising at all, just maybe once or two, one or two um, over the 64 issue run that we had. Um, mainly it started out selling it to kids in, in, you know, classmates basically and classmates of my brothers. I have two little brothers. Um, but the key to it and something that I never, I was too naive to realize was that when the media writes about you or does does feature shows about you, that's amazing free publicity. And so once what I would do is I would send the magazine to sports writers and sportscasters who I admired. I only wanted their feedback. I was not trying to get on the airwaves or, or in an article. Um, but one of those writers, George Vesey of the New York Times, um, thought it was cute and told his editor, hey, here's a kid in Philadelphia. It looks like he's, uh, you know, this might make a fun little story. So someone from the New York Times called me and they wrote an article about me. And to my everlasting uh, luck, they published my address and how much a subscription cost. And man, Brett, the check started rolling in. Um, so we got about, we got up to about 500 or 600 subscriptions all across the country. Um, my mom took over as the business manager and, and I was, I was, uh, printing it first at my dad's, uh, office and in, in Philly. And then we had to go, you know, we had to go to an actual printing place after that. Um, but what it, what it, what it taught me more than anything was the way a subject is portrayed in the media. Because after that New York times article, a lot of articles start, a lot of people wanted me to, to, you know, a lot of people want to interview me, TV, uh, radio, print, all of it. Um, and so I realized like what it's like to be interviewed and and subjected to kind of the same questions over and over again, or maybe being misquoted, nothing malicious. It was all good publicity, but maybe being misquoted or characterized in an inaccurate way and how that feels. And so 
I feel like, and I hope that I've always tried to remember that when I'm doing interviews and not be repetitive and to treat everyone fairly and, and above all quote people accurately. (laughs) Um, Because to me, I could always tell if there was a quote of mine that I didn't say, or if I said something slightly different, I'm like, I don't use that word. I don't, I don't, that doesn't sound like me. I, I, maybe that's what I'm, maybe that's the point of what I meant, but that's not how I said it. And so ever since then, um, very early, I've, I think I've been pretty attuned to how the subjects feel and that's been an enormous help. Like you mentioned earlier, you go to Vanderbilt, 1994, you get the Grantland Rice, Fred, Russell sports scholarship. And I think, uh, I think kind of, you know, check me if I'm wrong on this, but, uh, to, to receive that intends to pursue a career in sports, right? I think Skip Bayless won the same scholarship. Uh, how cool was that for you? He did. Yeah, it, it was, that was, um, really special to be sort of part of a lineage like that. I hadn't heard, about Vanderbilt, to be honest, until I got to high school and, and an advisor, um, you know, brought that to my attention. Um, it was, it was far away in Nashville, you know, it was, it was a different, it was, it was not a, uh, major league city at, at the time. Um, and I, but I was intrigued because I had a great reputation and it was in the sec and all that. And so I would get to cover big time sports. Um, but I had some other good schools I could have gone to, but more than anything, I just felt like being part of a tradition and going somewhere where you kind of already have a an identity um, would be important. So I I went down to the paper there when I was when I was looking. Um, it's called the Vanderbilt Hustler, which made it for a lot of uh, funny commentary back in the day. <laughs> um, but I just felt this camaraderie, man. I felt like it was like you were joining a team, um, and so it was like being recruited for a sport, but not to play, you know, to write. And so I just, I love that aspect of coming somewhere where you were wanted and diving right in. And so you know, I, I, I covered all, all sports really. And, and, you know, climbed my way up the, I was editor in chief of the, of the paper, but it was such a collegial fun atmosphere. And you felt like you were following the tradition of some really good uh, sports writers, again, like Buster Olney and Dave Shinen and, um, you know, Lee Jenkins came after me and just so many other guys through the years, at, starting with Grantland Rice himself. So um, ended up being a great choice, but uh, I, you know, I, I hadn't even heard of it before I heard of the scholarship. Yeah. And man, the SEC, especially from a, uh, you know, baseball standpoint, you know, I, I went to USC, obviously it's a football school and there's 70,000 strong on a Saturday at the Coliseum. And when I went there in the late eighties, uh, you know, the Pac-6 was a big deal with Stanford and Arizona, Arizona State. Still is a high-end, you know, Division One programs. But the SEC is kind of taken over. I mean, it's a different world. You go to an SEC school for baseball, that's a big deal. You know, it, years at SC, we had some really good teams. It'd be like a Friday night, we're playing Stanford. It's Musina on the mound for Stanford. You know, we're both fighting for the Pac-10 championship and maybe we get 350 people. You go to an SEC baseball game at the college level, man, that whole whole city turns out for you. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's fun though now because I can tell, I see so many Vandy guys in the big leagues 
Yeah. <laughs> I, could tell them, I could tell them what it was like when I was there. You know, we the team was uh, basically a 500 team. They'd usually have one one or two real high draft picks. But um, I tell them about how, yeah, we would sit on on the on a on folding chairs um, on a card table. Uh, on top of the dugout, that was our little press box, and it was me and the sports information director, and and a boombox and a microphone for the sound system. Like there was, it was so different than it is now. You know, we had one big leaguer come out of there um, in my in my four years there. It was Josh Paul. Um, again, we had some others who who didn't make it, but it was a uh, it was a good program, but it was just one of many. It was not what it became under Tim Corbin. Um, so yeah, it's funny to tell tell these kids now um, what it was a little bit of what it was like in the nineties. Uh, 96 and 97, uh, you intern the Washington Post and the uh, Boston Globe. Uh, just kind of an advertisement for things to come for you. Uh, how, how was that for you? And, and you know, you, you're getting to that junior, senior year in college. And uh, this is becoming a real thing and a real possibility for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I the one year I didn't do it was was um, 95. Uh I didn't get the internships and I didn't know what I was going to do. And it was luckily the, the, I had stopped doing my magazine and uh, I, I called up Phillies and Larry Shank and, and they were not doing interns that year. Cause it was right after the strike. They didn't have the budget, but um, I offered to do it and they said, well, great. So uh, you know, that, that was one summer where I actually worked on the team side of things and, and got a pretty good uh, perspe- perspective on what PR departments, how they work and, and what those people go through. Um so that that has ended up helping me a lot, but yeah, working at the Boston Globe was was tremendous. It's probably still the best sports section in the country, um, and uh, met a lot of great people. Dan Shaughnessy is I'm still really good friends with him. Um, then working at the Washington Post was very different. It was it was a, a sports section that was maybe a little more. At, I don't want to say news focused because the Boston Globe is great on news and breaks everything, but it was it was very um, technically focused, right? Where like the, the globe, I was able to take chances with my writing and, and just kind of write the way I wanted to write. It was a real writer's paper. Um, but at the, at the post, you sort of had to follow the strict, maybe journalistic rules a little, a little tighter. Um, and I guess that helped. I mean, I think that helped, uh, that helped me kind of tighten up my, you know, serious news reporting, um, style but uh it was probably more a little more fun working at the uh at at the globe just going to fenway you know staying on com uh you know and then just it, being around fenway park and just that that whole baseball scene was was uh was great but it was different you know it was it wasn't it did it wasn't quite it was kind of a lull for the red sox in 96 you know they were they were before nomar and pedro and and kind of you know, the end of the Roger Clemens era, they weren't really a, as much of a phenomenon as they became, but it was great, man. Cause you got to have two clips in one at that point, you're in college, you're just looking to build your clips for your future employers. And so, you know, before the game, let's say the Royals are in town. I talked to Kevin Apier about his wacky delivery and about almost joining the Red Sox as a free agent and all this stuff. So I'd write that pregame. I'd get a pregame column out of that. And then postgame, I'd write about something that happened in the game. So I'd get two clips that day for one day of work. And that was, that was a lot of fun because you really wanted to impress your future employer. Kind of like being in the minor leagues, you know, you, you want to, uh, you want to, you want to move up to the big leagues someday and, and have something to, to show your future, uh, future employers. 
graduate Vanderbilt in 97, go to uh, work for Riverside Press Enterprise, and you're covering the Angels. Um, now you're doing it for real. Is it, it well? Not that you weren't. Like you said, you're going to Fenway. You're getting your articles, uh, but now you're you're out of college. You're 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 trying to get to where currently you reside. Uh, how was that for you, the Angels? And then then you move on ninety eight ninety nine to the Seattle Post Intelligencer. I just missed you. You know, I'd started my yes. career in Seattle, and I came back right when you left and went to New York. But talk about the first two stops on on your kind of pro career. Yeah, well, I, I was determined to to start uh, start out by covering baseball because I felt like I had done it um, already for a while. And that was maybe asking a lot, um, but I just felt like I had already kind of paid my dues in that sense. Um, and luckily, I, but I was willing to go anywhere. And that's one thing I tell kids too. Like, if you really want a, some job, um, keep your eye on what you want to do and be willing to go anywhere for it. So I didn't limit myself geographically. And I, as it turns out, was just really lucky that the first two jobs happened on the West Coast because um, it's the only years I've lived out there. And it's a obviously, needless to say, a hugely important part of this country. So the fact that I have I lived out there for two years, um, I feel like just makes me feel a little more connected as a pretty much lifelong East Coast guy um, to California and, and, and the West coast, kind of like living in Nashville for four years makes me feel a little, a little more connected to the South that I probably never would have otherwise. So that part of it was, was fun. Um, but also, man, when you're from the East coast and you live in California, you're 22 years old, you know, there's no going home on the weekend. Like you got to sink or swim. So I really learned how to be independent, um, and kind of to be comfortable with, myself, um, you know, cause you don't, you go out there not knowing a lot of people and really starting over from scratch, covering a team. That was the best part of it, man, was just learning what it's really like to be around a baseball team every day and all the minutia that goes into it, all the, all the day-to-day stuff that players have to deal with and organizations have to deal with. Um, because when you're a beat writer, there's no detail that's, that's too small. Um, and seeing it on that day-to-day basis, uh, f- getting to know the players as well as you could from the minor leagues on up um, that really taught me about baseball in a way that I couldn't have gotten um, before just by popping in and doing a feature here and there and, 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 you know, a sidebar here and there um, you really get to know um, what the game, how the game is played and, and managed and general managed and all that stuff by being a beat writer. So, um, that helped, and I was lucky to have good, interesting teams. Um, those Angel teams had some salty veteran types. Um, they, you know, that was they, they had uh, Dave Hollins was there, and, and Chuck Finley, Cecil Fielder was on that team. Some older dudes, Greg Catteray was there, and Mike Fetters and Trevor Wilson, and you know, Greg Jeffries came on at the end of the year, and you had but you had this young core of Gary Anderson and Edmonds and and Salmon and Klaus and, and all these guys who would go on to win the World Series, Percival in a few years. Um, Terry Collins was the manager. Boa was a coach. Joe Madden was a coach. I mean, I lucked into covering so many fascinating figures those first two, three years, man. Going up to Seattle, Pinella, Griffey, A-Rod, Edgar Martinez, uh, Jay Buhner, uh, Jamie Moyer, Sagi, all these guys, like just so many um, interesting Largely veteran teams that 
are going to test you a little bit, um, but you've got to prove that you can hang with them. Um, and that year in Seattle, especially because I was, I was on the road every single day of spring training, every road trip. Um, you know, there was no cutting, no skipping the Midwest road trip to save money. Like we would do occasionally in Riverside, you know, where I probably did two thirds of the road games. Seattle, it was every day, spring training to the end of the season, off season, the whole thing. And that was a huge education in, in so many ways. 2000, you head to the big app. Uh, New York Times, number one market. How different from uh, being in Seattle and uh, covering the Angels was that? Because playing in Seattle, playing in, in, you know, when I'd come in and play the Angels, my favorite park, by the way, to play in, it's just kind of a, it's a different atmosphere. It's a laid back. People are there to just kind of enjoy it, have a latte in Seattle. Hmm. Um Usually pretty nice fans. New York's a different animal. Um, how did you see the differences? Well, I was really concerned about it um, when I first got there because I had this perception of the New York media as being all these, this just this pit full of jackals and these, you know, these crass, uh, you know, jerks always looking for the story and, and, and uh, the scoop and trying to stir stuff up. And it turns out it wasn't like that at all. Um, most of the people were, were really cool to me and, um, they just, you know, New Yorkers like, like most places, I guess they, they just want you to be genuine, whoever you are. If you're a genuine tough guy. Okay. If you're a genuine nice guy, like I try to be and think I am, that's cool too. Like it just, just be authentic to yourself. And that's what I was. And it was not a hard transition at all because I always felt like, you know, you can say that. There, then there is something to that laid back vibe out west, but it doesn't change the fact I still got to file a, a notebook and, and a and a running game story, and then go down to the clubhouse and file another game story and come up with features. Do all the work is the same, you know. So it's it's not like you know I was still trying to trying to beat the other beat writer and get the story first, and and uh, having that one on one competition because um, there was only three beat writers for the Mariners and three or four were the Angels. Um, so yeah, there were more more people, more more uh, beat writers, but I got along great with all of them, and uh, the deadlines didn't change. I still had to file a story. I was still challenging myself to to write good stories and and uh, figure out what's happening on the team. So it ended up not being a a huge transition in terms of dealing with the pressure or whatever. And in some ways, it was actually easier because you know you had eight. 10 people covering the team with you. So um, there were a better chance that you'd find someone or two or three people in there to go have lunch with. And, and uh, if you got a scoop and no one else did, it was great. But if someone else got one and you didn't, then now you have six other six, seven other people who didn't get it either. So you don't feel as lonely as you do when uh, the other paper has it and you don't, you feel like you're walking in uh, the clubhouse like, Oh my God, how can I miss that? And there's, there's sort of strength in numbers when the, uh, you know, when uh, someone else gets a story and five others of you didn't, you feel like, all right, well, at least I wasn't the only one who got beat today. <laughs> oh, two to oh eight, switch over. Same city. Now you head to the Yankees. Uh, wow. You were there for the oh three. Well, on the Boone podcast, as you know, Tyler, we like to call uh, Aaron Boone. He, he's Uncle Aaron. So <laughs> you got uh, Uncle Uncle Arnie's Homer 
in 2003. <laughs> I know the big story was me in the booth with Jack Buck showing yeah. up in the booth one minute before before go time. Yeah. You know, looking <laughs> back, I I uh, had I had Tim McCarver on on the show recently, and and I said, Timmy, the first thing I said is that I'm sorry. I didn't take my job serious in 2003, you know. I was a current player coming off a big year, kind of pissed that, you know, we didn't make it to the postseason. They convinced – Fox convinced me. And I really didn't take it serious. And I'd come up there, and it was Joe Buck and Tim McCarver in the booth. They got their notes, and and I'm just kind of like, all right, I'm here. Well, are you, you going to do your opening, Brad? I don't know. What do you want me to say, you know? Now, but that's that's what we do when we're young and and dumb and and we're players. And I, I did tell Timmy, I said, I'm sorry about that. You know, I wasn't taking it serious. And this is what you do for a living. So I learned a lot that series. You were there for it, uh, covering the Yankees those years. Uh, and I, I even as a player, you know, I I made mention earlier. Anaheim was my favorite place to play. My favorite ballpark. I I went to high school right down the street. But if I had one game to play, it's going to be a crisp Friday night in New York City at Yankee Stadium. There's just nothing like it. And I always thought one day before I retire, uh, I'm going to play for the Yankees. Never happened for me, but there's mm-hmm. just something different about it. And I can't explain it to people. Uh, I remember I played in World Series there and just just taking, you know, getting loose before the game. There's just something about New York postseason it's just you know you're somewhere special and and it's a real cool place you covered the yankees 02 to 08 uh how was that on your on your meter so far in in you know your post-college career on all the teams that you had covered yeah th- that's a great way to put it there there was something special about that old that old yankee stadium it wasn't it wasn't like a neighborhoody kind of cutesy place like like wrigley field or 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 even Fenway Park, which is like this this jewel box. Um, it was gritty. It was grimy. It was, uh, but there was something something to that, you know, something to that feeling of seeing. The only thing you could really see was that that uh, the train moving moving through in, in right center field, and that kind of connected you to the the earthiness of New York. Part of the, what you made Yankee Stadium special, I felt like, was that upper deck was so it was angled so steeply. It, it, and it was it was sort of in the shape of a V, like they would. It was a it was an odd shaped ballpark, and something about that. I don't know if it was the sounds that it produced or just the feeling of grandeur. Um, but man, it was it was cool being in that park. It was uncomfortable the press box a little bit, like you know it wasn't it wasn't as as roomy, let's say. But the view was amazing, and there was something to it when you when you go down and you're sitting in row one, seat one of the press box. You know, for the New York Times, that was special to me. There was something about I, I'm not into status or whatever, but like there was something cool about being the New York Times beat writer covering the New York Yankees, sitting in row one, seat one when your brother hits that home run. I mean, you're covering I'm covering a game that's going to be and probably still stands out as the, the most incredible game I've ever covered. Um, it ends in a way that nobody saw coming. You know, before that ball even lands in the seats, Jack Curry's sitting next to me and he stands up. And he said, Aaron Boone, are you kidding me? Like, that's how it ends. Oh, my God. Like, no one would have thought. You know, I'm, I'm, I had covered the World Series there in, in 2000 um, when Clemens threw the bat at, at, at Piazza. Another thing like that no one ever saw coming. And that was what was so amazing because you could we could hype these events as much as as much as we could. 
And you guys down there on the field would still do something that nobody saw coming. And that was what made, that's what makes covering baseball so cool is that no matter how much we can forecast it and all the work we can do before pregame, nobody knows what the heck's going to happen. And what happens is something historic that we'll remember forever. And that night was, uh, was certainly one of them. Um, you know, and just covering that team for that era. When I started it, I was like, you know what? They've made four World Series in a row. It's got to end sometime. The law of this law of averages. They're not going to keep going. And sure enough, you know, I covered them for eight years. They made two World Series. But the stars of those those teams were all good. And the stars they would bring in. I mean, I, I mentioned it, the, the guys I got to cover in Seattle. But talk about how lucky was I to be able to cover not just the core four, you know, Jeter, Rivera, Pettit, Posada, and then Bernie, but all the guys they brought in from elsewhere, Messina, Matsui, Giambi, Damon, Sheffield, Randy Johnson, Bobby Abreu, CeCe Sabathia, Mark Teixeira, all these big stars. Even Pudge Rodriguez was there for a couple months. I mean, not to mention Joe Torre and, so it was just a, it was really a chance to be around greatness. And I think that's a lot of what we what we do is as sports fans and the sports journalists, you know, we, we search for greatness. And when you're around it, you need to appreciate it. And uh, and I hope I did. Currently in your 12th year uh, as New York Times national baseball writer. That's that's a pretty big job. Uh, the, all the writers that came before you legendary. Um, who's been your biggest influence? My biggest influence um, in my career has been Jason Stark, um, for sure. I, Jason, I feel like, is the best baseball writer who, who ever lived. Um, I feel like he has – he does it all, um, and he's never lost his enthusiasm. Um, his writing style, the things he notices, his his just attitude and integrity um, – ethics all of that um he's he's been my my role model from really the first time i could read the sports pages um but there have been there have been a lot of others um you know in, in new york i mean getting to work alongside buster Olney and jack curry in their early years um were really important again you talk about people with integrity um and talent and and just uh, a great attitude to to share with you and and help you along um very lucky to be, to be, to be with those guys. But one other guy I, I, I really should mention is a writer who covered the Tigers for a long time named John Lowe. Um, and John's retired now, but I got to know John just covering the American league um, in those early years. And he taught me one thing that was as important as anything else. Um, I remember I had written about an angels pitcher named Jason Dixon, who, had, had pitched really well in 97, but 98 didn't go so well for him. And I had just had a little line in my story about how, uh, he, you know, he was giving up so many hits that day. It looked like Charlie Brown on the mound, like, you know, with all the line drives flying right back at him and his, his head spinning around. And, stuff. and it was a, you know, it was just a little imagery, just a one-liner. Um, and John, you know, John pointed out to me once and he said, you know, it's a, it's a cute image and you can go with that if you want. Um, but how would you feel if you're Jason Dixon reading that you're kind of making fun of him. Right. And I said, yeah, I don't want to be a cheap shot guy. I, I never want, I, I, and from that point on, I've always tried to remember that 
don't don't take it. This is these guys' livelihoods. They're trying their hardest, and don't don't make fun of them. You know, like like it's okay to to yeah. Jason Dixon had a bad day. Here's why. You know, he's had a tough year. This is why his pitches weren't working. Whatever. But don't 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 make the guy into a joke. And I've always tried to remember that these are real people. And whether or not he was ever going to read that story, um, he might have. And he might have thought it was a cheap shot and it wasn't fair. And so I've always kept that in mind, thanks to John Lowe, just that that human aspect of this is that these are real people on the other side that you're writing about. And, you know, they're just treating with respect all the time. I want to talk about uh, you're obviously a uh, great writer. Uh, you've written several books, but I want to talk about the most recent one, K, History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. And, uh, you know, I was kind of browsing through it and looking at it and the amount of people that you interviewed for this book. And, uh, you know, we've had so many, so many pitchers on the Boone, on the Boone podcast, guys that I've played with, played against, guys that I haven't played against, you know, Carlton, I know who is your favorite, Steve Carlton, uh, Maddox, um, you know, we had Vita Blue, Raleigh Fingers, uh, Hoffy, one of my good buddies, Trevor, Jim Abbott, Jamie Moyer, Saberhagen, you mentioned earlier, Gooby, Doc Gooden, uh, the Nasty Boys, on and on. So many pitchers uh, that I love to talk to because so many different styles. You know, for yeah. me, uh, the, the Braves of the 90s and, and to this day. You know, you, you get as an ex-player, you get a lot of who was the toughest pitcher you ever. Well, there was a lot of them. You know, Randy Johnson. Yes. Pedro. Yes. But I always sum it up now and go Maddox Moltz Glavin. Does that sum it up for you? They're a pain in the neck. They're three legit number one pitchers. They all do it a different way. Uh, so it wasn't like, all right, we get Smoltzy today, Clemens tomorrow. They come out of the same arm slot. No, you got Glavin finesse. Maddox is just going to carve you up. Probably the greatest pitcher I've ever faced from not only a stuff standpoint, but from a technical standpoint and a preparation. I've never faced anybody like him to this day. But that had to be unbelievable. All the interviews you got, the different perspectives. And I usually, I don't like pitchers. Because I feel like I got too friendly with a pitcher when I had to face him. He had a little bit of an edge on me. So, so it used to piss me off when, when I'd really respect and like a pitcher, even if he was on my own team, because I knew there was a chance one day somewhere he was going to be on another team and I was going to have to face him. But uh, walk me through that book. And, and man, the people I've talked to have such uh, high praise for the book and such good things to say and how well it was written. But just take me through uh, the interview process and, and what you learned from it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it it was it was a dream. I mean, it's something clear. It was a dream come true. I mean, I always wanted to write a book, um, but I never knew if I would have the time with four kids and everything. Um, and I never and I and I knew I would have to be a topic that once I came, once I came up with it. I couldn't not do it. Like, and I, it took me a while to kind of find that right idea. But once we hit on it, it was it was it was something I couldn't not do. I, I, I the idea was to write, sort of trace the history of the game through ten different pitches and how those pitches came to be, and you know how they were passed down from from one generation to the next. 
And the having that as kind of a, a concept opened up the whole world of baseball to me. Basically, anyone who threw any pitch particularly well, I was going to try to find you and just find out why. Find out the story of how how you learned that split finger fastball, how you learned that that screwball or that curve, um, and just like I said at the beginning, just learn about these stories because I'm not a coach. I can't tell you how to throw a pitch. Um, and, and what I am is, and, and I'm not a mathematician. I'm not going to try to you know throw a lot of x axis and y axis and all that stuff at you. But I feel like what I am is a storyteller, and if if I can get players and coaches and hitters to share their stories with me. I feel like I could communicate that in a, in a way that's readable and helps bring the game alive. You watch any game, the whole thing is, is, is pitching like how, how pitchers control the action. Pitchers decide what to throw. Nothing happens until the pitcher pitches the ball and decides what he's throwing and why. So I was able to really kind of get in deep on, those decisions and how those weapons came to be in each pitcher's um, arsenal. So I, I talked to every, I talked to over 300 people for this book. I talked to dozens of hall of fame guys. Um, the, the person I wanted to get most was Steve Carlton and he was tremendous. You know, we talked for 40 minutes about the slider and the stories behind it. Um, and the, the, the poignant thing about it now is that, a uh, book came out in 2019. I worked on it from 15, 15, 16, 17, a little bit of 18. And already we've lost um, several of these, of these greats. I, I talked to Roy Halliday. I think I did the last long interview with Roy Halliday um, before he died. I talked to Phil Negro for a long time. I talked to Bob Gibson a couple of times. Um, I talked to Don Sutton, you know, and, and, and without them, um, the book would have been less than, than, than what it was. Um so I was very grateful to everybody I was able to talk to um, and very fortunate that I did it when I did. Cause um, you know, I was able to get some, some people who, uh, who unfortunately are no longer with us, but it, it was a labor of love uh, for sure. And I didn't, it certainly is not about me, but I was able to, I felt like if I put myself in there just a little bit um, I could help the reader kind of connect with me as someone who didn't play past high school but has a has a deep curiosity for how these guys, how the great ones were always innovating and always wanting to get better. And I learned that from pitchers like Mike Messina, um, who I you know covered with the Yankees. And Mike was great. Went up to Montoursville, PA, and had lunch with him for a couple hours and talking pitching. I mean, what could be better than that? Talking pitching in Montoursville, PA, with Mike Messina. You know, throwing knuckleballs in the backyard with Jim Bouton, who another another uh, man we lost um, after I spoke with him. So, you know, it was it, it's the best thing I've ever done. And, um, you know, I I, I really uh, I'm glad I'm glad you liked it and, and glad it has the reputation it does, because uh, I really wanted it to ring true to actual pitchers. Um, so I had a couple pitchers on my you know, <laughs> I could call and, and say, is this sound true? Is this sound like a. You know, is this, is this accurate to how the game really is? And and uh, I got the approval from them. You know, guys like Oral Hershiser and um, you know, CJ Nitkowski, who 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 was a friend. Um, just guys who you know, Zach Britton. You know, people would come up and say, "Yeah, you know what? That that was right. I didn't know that." Jim Palmer. You know, it, it's it's very rewarding um, to know that I don't do what they do, but um, I could tell their story uh, accurately. 
Very cool. K, History of Baseball in 10 Pitches. Go pick one of Tyler's books up. Tyler Kepner, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was uh, awesome. It was a pleasure. And we have a, a, a two-part special. And we are going to bring in CBS Sports Radio's own Rich Herrera to facilitate. Are you ready for this, Tyler? Yes, sir. All right. All hey, right. Rich. Let's do it. Rich. Tyler, Brett, how are you guys today? We're doing Great. super duper, Rich. All right. Well, let's take a look at the 2021 season, our, our second half review. And maybe if you guys want to get your crystal balls ready, we'll take a look at what you think we're going to see in the postseason. So I'm going to start with Tyler. Tyler, what's your biggest surprise of the 2021 baseball season? Well, I think it's got to be the San Francisco Giants. I mean, if you had said that the Dodgers would win 100 games, I'm all in. Of course they will. They're great. Um but the Giants, to have even more wins than them, no way. I mean, an older team like they are, uh, you know, a team relying on some pitchers who have been kind of up and down in their careers, uh, all credit to them, man. They, they have they – have, uh, I keep waiting for them to fade, and they haven't done it yet. Again, Tyler, being the national baseball writer for the New York Times, what's the reaction around the game with this – success the Giants have. A lot of people I talk to scratch their head and say, I have no idea how Gabe Kapler and Farhan Zaidi been able to pull this off. Yeah. You know, they, they, they've, they really expanded their, their coaching uh, tree out there. I think that helps. I, I think a lot of times, you know, teams have Theo, Theo Epstein once said this is like, you know, you have these, you run these simulators on these teams you build um, and there's 10,000 outcomes and the best and the worst part of it is that you have to live with one of those outcomes and they're all possible, right? So the Giants, I, everything has come up, you know, the, the cards have come up the right way. Like was Brandon Belt, Brandon Crawford, uh, you know, Buster Posey, Kevin Gossman, all these guys, were they all capable of having a good season? Sure, they've had them before. Um, but to all happen at once, you know, that's a lot of cards flipping up in your favor. And uh, they it's not like these guys have never been good. They have been, but to do it again all together, hey, man, I, nobody saw that happening. That's a great way to put it. It sounds like Dr. Strange in the end of uh, Avengers trying to figure out there's 10 million possibilities that can happen. I'll pick the one, and it happened, and we see that with the San Francisco Giants. So, Booney, who do you have? What's your biggest surprise of 2021? Uh, I've got to stick with the Giants. You know, I'm always surprised by the Tampa Bay Rays. They never cease to amaze me at what they do in Tampa and been doing it year in and year out. Uh, Oakland Athletics, they're always, you know, a little down this year, but always have have amazed me at how they constantly turn it over. Um, I've got to go with the Giants as well. I mean, nobody expected this uh, going into the season. If you look on paper from Dodgers to the Giants to the San Diego Padres, I think four months ago, Without a doubt, they're they're third best in that division. Not only are they not third best, but they got the best record in baseball. I think Tyler uh, touched on uh, some guys having years. Yes, were they were they capable of it? Of course. Did we expect them to have those big years? I for one didn't. The only thing that might rival those San Francisco Giants is if these Seattle Mariners find a way to sneak into that last wild card. That'll be a story. Never saw that coming. If you told me six weeks ago they'd be a half a game out right now, I'd tell you you're absolutely crazy knocking on the door at 90 wins. So uh, I'm going to go Giants, asterisk, slash, maybe co-surprises Mariners. Tyler, are you surprised at anything that the Tampa Bay Rays do anymore? 
You know, that's a great question. And I'm actually writing about them this week. I, I went down to, to Tampa recently and and I, I feel like I've written variations of this for, for a decade now or more. How do they do it? Um, because they upend everything you would think of um, as, as traditional wisdom, right? Like last year, they're in the World Series. They have pretty good starting pitching, right? They got Charlie Morton and Blake Snell and Tyler Glass now. Well, they trade Snell and they get rid of Morton and Glass now makes a, you know, a couple months worth of starts and then he goes down. So what happens? Well, they just collect a whole bunch of young guys and and, and uh, retreads and whatnot. And all of a sudden they do great because they only ask them to go five innings and then they figure it out with this whole stable of, of terrific relievers. Um, they have a lineup too that is is maybe the best lineup in the league, um, the most runs in the American League, even though they strike out some. Um, but they just mix and match. And I think the word culture is way overused, and most of the time it's meaningless. But in a situation like Tampa, you've got to have an amazing culture because you've got to have selfless players who are like, okay, I don't like I, I'm not going to get 600 plate appearances, but I might get 400, and the other guy is going to be good for – the other 200 because he does stuff that I don't do. Now the Rays, they find these players who do certain things well, and they put them in in the position to do those things to, to do those things that help the team. You know, they don't look for the perfect player, but if they get enough players with enough skills, pitching and hitting, they're going to figure it out. It's amazing year after year. Does it surprise me? I guess it shouldn't at this point, but it still kind of does. The term arbitrage, they go out and they find everything else that everybody else undervalues, put a value on that, and they turn it around. And Tyler, here's the most amazing thing. Think about the brain drain that they've had in Tampa Bay. Uh, Heim Bloom came from Tampa Bay. Um, uh, Andrew Friedman is at Los Angeles, building winners out there. Think of the coaches that they've lost. Joe Madden is in Anaheim. Derek Shelton uh, is in Pittsburgh. Rocco Baldelli in Minnesota. You've got Davey Martinez, who's in uh, in Washington. Charlie Montoya was a coach there as well. They've lost so many players, so many coaches, so many front office guys. I mean, you look at the Giants. Scott Casimir started for them the other day. He was a pitcher in the 2008 World Series, and they continue to win. That's a great point. That really is. Um, I mean, they they Eric Neander does a, does an amazing job. Um, but yeah, there, there's been a lot of lot of front office guys there who, who've who've been brilliant and managers. And understandably, these teams have have you know have have tried to recreate the magic there and it's been pretty successful right i mean the red sox this year have been really good under high and bloom and and the dodgers are the are the champs under friedman and the giants you know farhan worked with friedman so it, it's it has spread but there's only one tampa bay rays you know there's only one team that is able to do it quite the way they do with a very low payroll very few fans in the ballpark um they just figure it out. They don't make excuses and they just, you know, they, they, they find a way. I, it's, it, it is really remarkable in, in, in writing about their offense, which I'm doing um, this week. Like I said, like, yeah, they strike out, but these, these same players, yeah, they might strike out a bit, but they're really good base runners. They're really good situational hitters. Um, you know, they're by and large, really good defenders. Uh, and and the prospect they brought up, Wander Franco, all he does is get on base every single day and never swings and misses. So like they, they just they they keep finding dudes to do it. Um, it's it's a remarkable story year after year. 
And it's amazing. They've never had Tyler Booney. They've never had anything original. Their their baseball stadium was a hand-me-down that was going to be uh, for the White Sox and the Rockies. Their spring training sites were a hand-me-down from the New York Mets uh, or the uh, the Texas Rangers. I mean, talk about a team that has absolutely no uh, assets whatsoever. They continue to go and go. And, Booney, this is how old I feel. Eric Neander was actually an intern when I worked there. He lived with my intern, Jeff McQueen. I'd take them to lunch because they didn't have any money. And now Eric Neander is a general manager of one of the best teams in baseball. So who figures out how the Rays do it? Because if they could, Brett, I bet everybody would try to copy, including the New York Yankees. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of the points that have been touched on are, are accurate, but I think it's the culture they've built there. The stadium is a separate entity. It's probably the worst stadium in Major League Baseball. Now, personally, on a side note, I like to hit there. So <laughs> I didn't mind it. I didn't mind the sparse crowds. And, you know, I, I knew that I was going to get a couple hits. I got a chance to go deep a few times. Uh, that aside, I, I think it's a culture. I think it's what we expect when you're a Tampa Bay race, kind of the underdog all the time. We don't have much money and we just go out and kick your butt day in and day out. I think you've got a bunch of really good baseball players, not necessarily star power. Now, yes, you brought in Nelson Cruz, legitimate star to pack in the middle of that lineup. What a good personality for all accounts and, and the guys that I know around the league that, that have played with Nelson, what a good guy and, and a great addition to that team. Uh, if not anything else uh, from a clubhouse presence, but just a bunch of really good baseball players. Tyler touched on how they run the bases. I remember the the Angels of the early 2000s. They were so good. Mike Sosha's Angels, they were so good because they ran the bases and they put pressure on the defense. That's what this Rays ball club does. And they found a way. That bullpen, probably the best bullpen in baseball. And that's a big reason they're doing what they're doing yet again and won another division with Yankees in Boston, the big dogs in the same division. Year in and year out, unbelievable what they do. You know, it's so funny. Interesting side note, Tyler. When Joe Madden got to his very first spring training uh, over at the old pacing complex where the New York Mets were, he took a, a base and he took orange paint and he painted the uh, the inside uh, corner of the bag and he goes, all right, we're going to do things the raise way. From now on, everybody's going to run the base the same way from the lowest level to the minors all the way to the big leagues. And that's where this whole thing started with just, like Brett said, that running from the Angels that he that Madden learned from Sosha and they've turned it into something special down there. Yeah, it, it, they they really have. I, I remember so well, Brett. Those those uh, those angel teams. Um, you know, like I, like I mentioned, I covered uh, them in ninety seven, ninety eight, and they they were they kind of had that sensibility then, and they really amplified it under Sosha. And Madden was there for all of it. And you know, you you see that even though Madden's gone, um, Kevin Cash, uh, you know, has gotten buy in, and it really takes buy in um, for a team like that. You never know when you're going to be traded. Um, or, or what they're, you know, why they're doing what they're doing, but it always has a reason. Like they didn't freak out when they traded along the way this year, they traded Rich Hill, who made the most starts for the team at the time. They traded Diego Castillo, who had the most saves, and nobody really, you know, questioned it because, hey, the Rays have a plan. They're going to bring in those two relievers they got for Willie Adamas. Well, they're pretty good. Drew Rasmussen and JP Fireisen, they're going to make a difference. Those guys they got for Blake Snell, you know, uh, the catcher Mejia and Patino, the pitcher, they're pretty good. You know, they, they have a great eye for talent and especially for developing 
um, developing that talent and, and getting the most out of what they have and seeing something that maybe others don't see, but they don't look for the full player. They look for a specific skill that a guy does well and they put him in position to do it. It's amazing. Really is, and by the way, Brett, I love working. I love working at a Tropicana Field too. It's great for the writers, man. People might not like it aesthetically, but it's a hell of a place to work. Yeah. All right. So, if the Giants and the Rays are our biggest surprise of 2021, what are the biggest disappointments uh, that you guys see for 2021? Tyler, we'll start with you. Um, there's there's several, and I'm sure you guys will touch on them. But I'll 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 go local and, and mention the Philadelphia Phillies because um, if you had said that the Mets would lose their best player, Jacob deGrom, for the whole second half. And the Braves would lose their best player, Ronald Acuna, for the whole second half. The Nats would trade everybody and have Strasburg get hurt. And the uh, Marlins would trade people and have Sixto Sanchez get hurt and all that. The division should have been the Phillies in, in a in a walk. You know, I, Bryce Harper's pitched, played like an MVP. And, and, and um, Zach Wheeler's pitched like a Cy Young. And J- JT Real Muta, they resigned. And yet they're going to finish just barely over 500. And yet again, their, their, their drought continues. It's, it's a shame. You know, they have not been a great defensive team. They have not gotten a ton out of their farm system. Um, but even so, it was all set up for them to win this division and break that drought. And uh, they just couldn't do it. So, Brett, who do you have as your biggest disappointment this year? Well, I'm going to go local. You know, I live in San Diego and I was so high on, and I had such high expectations for these Padres, you know, piggybacking on, on the uh, 2020 season. I just see the talent level Tatis, the, the face of the franchise to open the season. You had Darvish Snell, uh, my opinion, Snell still, I know he hasn't had the year everybody expects, one of the toughest lefties in the game, just stuff wise, uh, very disappointing year. He, he had Darvish started off great, uh, petered out. Musgrove's been kind of the, the saving grace. I mean, he's had a heck of a year. He's been the anchor of that staff. Lamette never came back. Obviously Clevenger's missed the whole year. That bullpen was really good, but I just, the, the dynamic of that team and the passion and the fire, and you had a bunch of young guys that, that are really talented. Tatis, arguably the most talented kid in the game, uh, with another uh, great player in Machado, who I think by Tatis uh, coming to, to uh, you know, coming into this scene and being such a great player so early, I think really lit a fire under Machado. Machado kind of looked around and said, wait a minute, I'm the top dog here. I, I, I This kid's for real. I, I don't want to get embarrassed. I think he made Machado a better player. Uh, I love Cronenworth. You know, th- there's so many things about that team I love. They were off to a great start. It was always going to be tough being in that division with the Dodgers and and now to come to find out the Giants. But the way they faded in the second half and, and now have played themselves out of playoff contention, uh, that's a big disappointment for me. You know, you look at the the Padres again, they've fallen under 500. They're going to struggle to stay 500 or finish above 500 for the season after starting so promising. All right. One of the questions or one of the stories, excuse me, that, that Brett has been talking about all year long, Tyler, is uh, Shohei Otani being the national baseball writer for the paper of record for the country. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on Otani and what he's meant for the game this year. Well, he's he's been something that we've never seen. Um, certainly, 
you know, obviously Babe Ruth could do it, um, but he never pitched this many times in a season where he had so many plate appearances. I mean, this is this is truly unprecedented. And, and if if Otani had just been a a useful everyday player, a guy who helps you, a guy who bats six and hits fifteen home runs and drives in sixty five, and he and he you know he's a number four starter and he stabilizes and hangs in there. Okay, that's great. That's a player who helps you both ways. But instead, he's a superstar as a pitcher and a superstar as a hitter. Like he's not just doing an adequate job; he is exceptional in both. It's remarkable. It's it's one of those things where, again, challenging things that we've already seen and already always accepted uh, as part of conventional wisdom. You love that. I love you know having done this job a long time now. I, I love seeing things that I've never seen before. And this is something that no one walking the earth has ever seen before. So, um, and the the best part, not the best part about it, but one cool thing about it is that he couldn't do it for three years. He was hurt. It didn't seem like it was going to happen. We saw flashes that first year, but he couldn't stay healthy. And he had Tommy John. And then last year it was terrible, but man, they stuck with it. He stuck with it. And it has all paid off this year. It's been, it's been huge for baseball. With that being said, Let's talk about the AL MVP. Who do you guys both uh, pick for the most valuable player in the American League? Is it Otani, Brett, or is it Vladdy Jr.? I've watched Vladdy Jr. Uh, I'll tell you, hats off to to the entire uh, Toronto Blue Jay team. I mean, you've got three guys arguably have, you know, Bichette over there <laughs> just drove in his 100th run. Simeon having the uh, one of the all-time great, uh, seasons as a second baseman with 44 homers and 100 ribbies. Vladdy has been threatening that triple crown, which obviously we don't see too often, especially in the modern era. Miguel Cabrera, I believe, is the last one to do it, but it hasn't happened many times in the last even 50, 60 years. Special year, Otani, it's not even close. You know, Tyler touched on the fact that even if he was having a decent year, even if he's playing both ways, If he's going to that rubber every fifth day and playing, he's an everyday player for you, like Tyler said, hitting sixth. He's still the MVP because he gives you two players. I don't know if it's fair to say quarterback, defensive back, playing both ways in football. That's probably something we'll never see at that level just because of the the pure physicality. But what he's doing right now, it is so hard to be a big league player and play at an all-star level. Uh, from a hitting standpoint, the work that goes into it, the preparation, the daily preparation, just getting your T work in, your early work, your video. And then you take it to the pitcher side. The pitchers have a completely different regimen they do. You know, if, if our number one starter, if, if Garrett Cole right now starts a game, the next day starts a whole new four-day cycle to get ready for his next start. And there's a lot that goes into it, and and there's a lot of intricacies. There's a lot of things behind the scenes we don't see. The fact that he's doing both, we haven't even mentioned, he's got 24 stolen bases. (laughs) There are really good base stealers out there that never in their career steal 24. I think he's also – he's almost making a mockery of it. He knows – and I think Otani, probably a real humble guy – I think he's even woken up now going, wow, nobody's ever seen anything like that. I can just see by that wry smile he has when he swipes another bag. He had that uh, that steal second, steal home the other day. And he, I mean, he's stealing home. What else could he do? And he gives you that little smile like, yeah, I'm on a bubble. I can't believe how 
how unbelievable everything's going. I mean, he's got nine wins. He's nine and two. He's got a 3.1 ERA. He's got 156 punch outs. Oh, and by the way, he's still got a chance to lead the league in home runs and, and drive in a hundred runs. I, I think never seeing it before might be an understatement. This is, uh, I don't know how he can keep this up. You know, I think the, the angels are watching him going, Wow, we've got something on. This is a unicorn right here. Wrap him in bubble wrap and and just make sure he gets to where he needs to get to because what he's doing, if he can keep this up in the future, uh, it's nothing. We've never seen it, not only in baseball, but in any professional sport at the highest level. Tyler, who's your MVP in the American League? Shohei Otani, no question about it, for all the reasons Brett said. I mean, I think I think if you're a player like like Brett and, and talking to people – who actually play the game, it's even more remarkable for them because they know how hard it, they know firsthand how hard it is just to master one side of the game. Do two of them. I mean, it's, 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 it's an easy call for me. All right, let's move on to the national league. Tyler, I'll let you go first. Who's your MVP. Uh, I'm going to say Brett. uh, I'm going to say Bryce Harper. Um, Again, I know the Phillies have been a disappointment, but they, you know, they, they did contend until the final week. Um, and Harper has just been uh, amazing. I mean, he really he's he's carried that team as far as as, as they can. They, to watch his at bats, and Juan Soto is very very similar. They just don't swing at anything bad. Um, the the, the on base plus slugging has been unreal. Um, I think you can make a, a good case for Soto as well, but I just think that you know Harper's numbers are a little better, and what he brings to that team every day. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think I think Harper gets it. I think it's been, you know, they had, it's just a, a great marriage there. Even though they haven't won, um, and I think he's uh, I think he's been the best player in the league, the most impactful force in the National League. Booney, who do you got? Oh, man, it, it's you know I, I got a list of five. I, I think you you touch on Juan Soto, maybe the best hitter in the game. Give me a healthy Soto, 162 games. He might be the best offensive player in baseball. And, and especially doing it at 22 years old, uh, Harper 430 on base percentage hit 311. I mean, what a great you know if you want to call it a comeback year for Harper, he's won an MVP before. But uh, I can't give it to him from a player standpoint. This is how I think about it: if you don't get to the postseason, you're not you have to be so much better than the second best player. On a, on a team that does go to the does go to the postseason for me to give you the MVP, I've seen it too many times in my career. Uh, Otani obviously is the exception. He's doing something so much above what we've ever seen that to me uh, that gets the MVP. I don't know. Something unbelievable is happening right now. The St. Louis Cardinals <laughs> coming in today just won seventeen straight. And Tyler, I don't know about you, but six weeks ago, if I said, how are the Cardinals looking? You're going, well, they're going to finish behind the Reds. All of a sudden, they win 17 in a row. Arenado having a great year coming over from, I think he's answered all those questions from Coors Field. Obviously, Coors is going to help you a little bit. He still put up big numbers. Goldschmidt, he's got to be in the conversation. Uh, 30 homers, 100 ribbies, hitting right around 300. I put a lot of credence in guys that hit 300 just because it doesn't happen too often. Tatis was the front runner for a long time. I'm going to give it to one of those St. Louis Cardinals. And that you asked me, I didn't think I'd be saying that right now. But the St. Louis Cardinals, what they did at the time they did it, it's got to come from that Cardinals team for me. 
and I'd probably give it to Goldschmidt right now. Yeah, and I don't think he's even been mentioned. Yeah, and and you know what? That that is a great point um, because he doesn't have to apologize for his numbers either. I mean, you look at he's leading the league in total bases. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the key indicators, obviously, of offensive uh, contributions. He's batting, like I said, almost three hundred. He's got a great on base percentage, a slugging percentage over five hundred. His numbers alone stand out, and then when you think about what he's done to lift those Cardinals, um, you, you made a pretty good case. I'm not saying I'd change my vote, but um, if I really had to cast a vote, I I would look seriously at Paul Goldschmidt. You're right. All right. A couple of managers have made stories and news uh, and waves this year in a good way. Tony LaRusso, 76-year-old manager. A lot of people are going, Tony LaRusso, what in the world are you doing hiring him? He's been out of the game so long. He had the run-in with Mercedes early. People are questioning whether he was just out of touch. And now you look at the Chicago White Sox. He's done a remarkable job. Tyler, uh, give me your thoughts on Tony Tony LaRusso and the job he did this year in Chicago. Yeah, it uh, it doesn't surprise me. Maybe I, it's just because I've gotten to know Tony really well um, you know, the last 10 years or so. And I've seen him along the way this last 10 years. And I know that he was always engaged. I mean, he, you know, whether he was working for the Red Sox or the Angels or the Diamondbacks, um, he always kept a really close eye on every game he watched. Uh, he keeps score. He had his own special scorecard. Um, he would travel with the teams. He was always very involved. Um, he lives the game, and he was very innovative in his day. You know, when he was young, uh, he's a young manager. People would talk about, oh, Tony La Russa, he has a law degree. He's using the bullpen different than anybody's ever done. You know, he, he was an innovator. So now he's old school, but he still has that mentality that he's open to anything that can help the team win. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, he had, he had a couple of rough spots, um, but it also really doesn't surprise me that he's, he's been, he's been a great fit because um, he's, he's a brilliant baseball man. I mean, he's one of the, he's only Connie Mack has won more games than Tony La Russa. He still knows what he's doing. Brett, we had Tony on the podcast early before spring training. Did you foresee him having this kind of success? Uh, it doesn't surprise me. First of all, he inherited a really good ball club. But uh, I know Tony, uh, and we talked We talked about I think it's First of all, I think it's great for the game. I think it's great to get some of that old, and you know, now it's frowned upon to even use the term old school. But let's call, let's call him a baseball purist if we're going to do that. Uh, age, that's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a concern. I can see that. But what he brings from a baseball mentality, uh, from a presence, there's certain guys that I've played for, and I've played for a lot of great managers, you know, Lou Pinella and Bobby Cox, Davey Johnson. There's something different about those guys when they enter a room. They have a presence. They, they, they get your attention. Tony's one of those guys. And we talked right before spring training and, and we talked, you know, uh, off air. And, and uh, I told him how awesome I thought this was for the game. There was going to be a lot of pushback. The new, the new generation, oh, we don't need that old guy in here. I think he's great for the game. And I think Tony had the attitude going in this. No, I'm not going to go manage it like, like it's the 1988 Oakland A's, that hard nose, you know, stick his foot up your butt mentality. I think he took uh, all his – all his experience in the game. And then he said, it's 2021. It's a different game. We're in the generation of analytics and we do things a little bit different. Let's be honest. The players are a little bit different. It's not like when I was coming into the league where you, you spoke when you were spoken to when you were a rookie and it didn't matter how good you were. It's a different ball game. I think Tony sat back and knew that 
I've got to be a little bit softer, Tony Larusa, yet have that 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 purest edge, that purest. He's a teacher. These kids can learn from him. And I think Tony had the open mind of maybe I can learn something from this current generation. I think he had a great attitude going in. I knew he was going to get a lot of slack. I knew he was going to get a lot of pushback. The fact is he inherited a great team, but he's taken them uh, to where they need to be right now. And I think it'd be an unbelievable story if these White Sox were going to to go a long way in this postseason, let alone get to that World Series. I think it's pretty cool. And he's going to be smiling <laughs> and just kind of laughing at all his his critics throughout the year. Tara, let me bring up one other manager that's having a heck of a year, and he's a veteran, uh, but in a different way. Uh, Dusty Baker with the Houston Astros. Everywhere Houston goes, people are banging on trash cans. There's always distractions. They're gonna, the boo birds are going to come out. Uh, people still talking about their their championship. But Dusty Baker has been able to get this team uh, to continue to just keep on winning, and they're going to make the playoffs, and you never know how far they could go. Give me your thoughts on what Dusty's done this year in Houston. Well, obviously it started last year, um, and they you could tell that that team was uh, you know maybe not mentally right. It took them a while, um, but then they, they hit the postseason, and they kind of rediscovered their mojo. They made that great run. Um, to Game Seven of the LCS, and and they've continued it this year. It's never really been um, you know in doubt how how good they've been this year. Dusty's a special guy, man. Like and anybody who's met Dusty comes away um, better for it. I think he he relates to every generation, every race. Um, he's just one of these people who who connects with you, whoever you are. And I think that transcends uh, his age um, and he's an easy guy to root for. I mean, it, it's, it's, he's never won the world series as a manager. Once he does, he's probably a lock for the hall of fame, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I think it was an inspired hire, uh, the perfect guy to kind of get you through um, what they've had to deal with because he had nothing to do with it. And yet he's seen everything there is to see in baseball. I mean, this is a guy who, went to spring training with Satchel Paige, um, you know, literally when Satchel Paige was, uh, was a coach for the Braves. I mean, he was on deck when, when Hank Aaron hit 715, he's seen it all. And yet he is probably the coolest person I've ever met. Um, and staying current, uh, he has a son who's just been drafted and whatnot. So he's, you know, he's, uh, he can relate to anybody and that helps. Absolutely. Oh, and by the way, mentioned his general manager, James Click. Tyler, former Tampa Bay Ray. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. All right. Um, (laughs) Hey, let's break out our crystal balls as we wrap everything up tonight. Um, I know there's just a couple spots still left to be decided and who's going to be the wild cards, but let's talk about the American League. Tyler, break out your crystal ball. Who do you think is going to win this uh, when it's all said and done and win the pennant? Well, I think anybody can because they're all pretty good, um, and it's all whoever gets hot, all that. but I, I've learned not to doubt the Rays. Um, I just, it, it might not make sense, uh, but they do what they, they do what they have to do to win. Um, I like the Astros too. Um, again, I like all of them. They all had a good shot. But if you if you pin me down, I'm not going to bet against the Rays. Uh, you do that, you, it, it's you know, it's pretty it's pretty foolhardy. So I'll, I'll take the Rays and. Um, Rays in the American League, but with uh, maybe a re- maybe a rematch with the Astros and, and uh, have them go seven again. 
Booney, who do you got winning the American League pennant? Usually, if you check the record books, usually the winner, well, we haven't got to the World Series yet. The team that goes deep into the postseason usually has the best starting pitching. I think it is the White Sox in the American League. I, I, I just think up and, up, and <laughs> up and down that starting rotation, uh, they got a power bullpen. I know since Kimbrough comes over, came over, it, it wasn't what they expected. You still got Hendricks at the end anchoring that bullpen, uh, top to bottom. They got an Abreu, uh, a formal, a former MVP, Robert, the young kid that was hurt most of the season coming back. Jimenez there. You got Anderson is kind of that team leader, that their shortstop. They've got a great team. I think it's kind of the the storybook and, and it ties into that Tony LaRusa story. For me, it's the White Sox winning the uh, American League. Not that anybody's asking me, but I'm going to pick the New York Yankees because Sue Boone listens to the podcast. So uh, just in case Uncle Aaron's mom is listening, I, I do have to give a little bit of uh, something to the New York Yankees just so I stay <laughs> on Sue's uh, best side. All right, <laughs> National League, who do you guys have? Uh, Brett, we'll start with you. Oh, is is it not the easiest? How can you not? If you if you're an honest man and you're a baseball man and you look at the number, I mean, you can't look past the Dodgers. Is it so over overwhelmingly on or uh, obvious that it is the Dodgers for me? Yes. So maybe it's not. Uh, I'm going to pick a dark horse though. How about an asterisk for me here? Look out for the Milwaukee Brewers and that starting rotation. But yes. Put pin me down. I got to make a pick. I can't look past the Dodgers. They're too good. They're 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 an all star team. All right, Tyler. Who do you got? Well, I think the Dodgers are the best team, but any you know anything can happen in that wild card game. I've seen them lose. Yeah. Games. I've seen them lose Game Seven of the World Series at Dodger Stadium, and then I saw them lose the last game of the series the next year, and then I saw them lose Game Five of the Division Series at their house twice to the Mets in fifteen, and then to the. Nats, what I'm saying is I know they're going to be home, but I've seen them lose at home when I thought they were going to win. So I'm not saying they'll lose the wild card game, but there's definitely a chance. And I don't want my team that I picked to go to the World Series to be out after one night. So I'm going to go with the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, I I worry a little bit about their offense, got to admit, but that pitching is so potentially dominant, such great strikeout stuff, which really plays in October um, I think it could be an all small market world series, the smallest markets of all Milwaukee versus Tampa Bay. I don't care about the ratings. I'd love to see it. Uh, Brewers Rays. Let's see what happens. Cuban sandwiches versus bratwurst would be an awfully good, uh, world series for everybody. Okay. Now I'm going to throw out one crazy thought here to both of you. Let's pick a world series winner. But I'm going to release you from your National League and your American League uh, uh, picks. This is kind of that wild card pick. You could pick anybody that you want for the World Series. If you want to stay with one of the two that you picked to win the pennant, you can. But go out on a limb. Who do you think can win the World Series, Booney? Well, Tyler, I'm going to say this. It was a great point on that one game. You're right. Anything could happen in a one-game playoff. That's why I think they should change it going forward to a best of three. You don't play 162 to have a one bad night or your starting pitcher assures or pulls a hamstring and you lose one game. I think it's got to be two out of three, but it's not now. It is one. Great point. Point taken. That being said, the Dodgers aren't the wild card yet. 
Let's see what happens tonight. They're two games out. We'll see. But I'm going to stick with it. Dodgers, best team in baseball. Can't All argue right. with it. That's a conventional pick. Tyler, you can go out as l- on as big a limb as you want. And if you crush it, it's like hitting uh, a trifecta. And, and if not, we just won't keep this part of the tape. <laughs> well, I will go with the Brewers in the end. I, I get it comes. I, I, I can only trust the race so far. And I, I feel like back-to-back pennants is pretty great. Um, but when you get down to it, I feel like there is still enough swing and miss in that lineup that the Brewers will find a way to exploit. Um, They've been good for a while. This is their fourth year in a row in the postseason. Um, They also made the LCS in 11. They've built something really good up there. And, hey, either way, if it's Brewers-Rays, it'll be something we've never seen before because neither of those teams have won it. Um, But I'll go Milwaukee. Um, got a soft spot for them. They the Bucks won, right? So maybe it's maybe it's a Milwaukee kind of year, or maybe it's a Tampa kind of year because the Lightning and the Buccaneers won too. Who the heck knows? But I'll say I'll say uh, Brewers. Well, guys, I appreciate you letting me come on and, uh, and talk about this. And, and Tyler, I'm looking on Amazon right now. I see K, but what I was hoping to find is an old version of your magazine you did as a kid that somebody might have put up on eBay or Amazon one day. Is it not out there anywhere on the uh, on eBay, huh? Well, you know, I guess my I guess my subscribers, uh, you know, they, they want to keep it for themselves. So that, that that's good with me. It's funny though because it's not out. It's not on the internet. It, it, you kind of feel like everything should be on the internet, but to get it out on the internet, I would kind of have to like, you know, screenshot uh, sixty four issues worth of pages and then download them and stuff. I wouldn't know how to do it. So it's all here at my house. But uh, no, it's it's kind of a kind of a shadow out there on the web. Well, thank you guys so much. Let me bring Dan Levy back in, uh, the voice of the Boone podcast, and you guys will wrap everything up. Thanks, guys. So first and foremost, we want to thank Tyler Kepner for coming on this special episode. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera, and he was the one who was just talking before. Digital content gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, Give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.